Isn't God good, church? Oh, man, come on, let's do it better than that. God is good, right? And he's good all the time. And it's a great, it's a great privilege to be in his presence and good to be in God's house this, this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to go through a passage in Luke chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. And, and I always, uh, I don't know, I, I'm sure m- more people do it, and I know I've said this before as well, but as I read the Bible, I, I always, I always have this mental image going through my mind. You know, I don't know, just maybe just me, especially when the the Old Testament stories and and the Gospels, which are also narratives, it's just it's like I'm watching something unfold in front of me. You know, it's like you you you're here on the sidelines, and you I kind of picture myself there, and I can see what's happening right then. I I I guess that's just the way I visualize things, and and quite often I picture myself in the crowd, especially in the Gospels. I picture myself in the crowd, and and. I'd say particularly when Jesus is talking to his disciples, you know, I just, uh, I'm just kind of there. I don't know, maybe I'm just weird doing that. But, you know, he's talking to his disciples and I'm kind of tucked away in the corner there and I'll just walk in with him as he's walking with the disciples. I don't know, just me, I guess. But anyway, that's just an extra bonus into my crazy mind. But it's just, it's just amazing, you know, when... The Word of God comes alive to you. And however that happens, for me, like I said, it happens because I'm so visual in my, in my learning. But it's pretty amazing when, when the Word of God comes alive. And anyway, as we come to uh, this, this portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 17, uh, the broader context is Jesus is he's making his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, uh, Jesus has been, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus has been ministering for almost three years uh, up to this point. And of course, he's traveled all over Israel and, um, you know, that whole area there in the ancient Near East where preaching the gospel, you know, preaching about the kingdom of God, preaching, uh, you know, about, I mean, not preaching, but just healing, doing all these miracles, casting out demons, ministering to to people, you know, and as he ministers, of course, there's this grace and this compassion and his mercy that he, that he talks about and he ministers with that. But at the same time, he talks about, you know, the coming judgment and everything else. He just talks about everything and he's, he's particularly harsh, we know, on the, you know, harsh with the religious people of that day. And as you come to Luke chapter 17, you realize uh, that this is towards the end of his life and his ministry. And it really is his final journey to Jerusalem as you come to this part here. And of course, we know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. He's going to be arrested and of course, tried and the torture and of course, ultimately crucified there. And that's what's, that's what's waiting for him. And Jesus actually, how Luke lays it out. Jesus' journey starts all the way back in chapter 9, verse 51. That's where his journey to Jerusalem starts. And we know he doesn't take a straight route to Jerusalem. It takes him a few months uh, to get to Jerusalem. And which we finally kind of see in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28, when he finally gets to Jerusalem. And so you have these 10, 11 chapters during which, and these months in which he does this ministry, the healings, of course, the miracles. And uh, Luke actually records five basic miracles that happen, for sure. We know there are a lot more uh, happening, definitely a lot more miracles happening. But Luke kind of mentions five of them, puts five of them together during this journey uh, of Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. And as you come to chapter 17, and what I'm looking at today (coughs) is the fourth miracle that we find. The first three involve one person, and the last one, the fifth one, involves two people who Jesus, the two blind people who Jesus heals. But here in the middle, it's the story of 10 lepers. It's the story of the 10 lepers who have, uh, I mean, we know the story, these 10 men who basically have leprosy. And so I want to pick up the story from chapter 17, verse 11, and we'll go all the way through 
verse 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, that sets the context up. Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Another translation says, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. They were healed. Verse 15, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. It's kind of interesting that Luke throws that in there. That he was a Samaritan. Verse 17, Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except for this foreigner? Verse 19, then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And it's a common story. Most of us have been brought up in the church. Again, we've heard about this story before. But it's a pretty amazing story, pretty remarkable story about 10 people being healed at the same time. You don't see that from leprosy. And now you've got to also realize that this is not Jesus' first encounter with the leper. Okay, Luke gives us an example back, not gives us an example. Luke in chapter 5, during the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, talks about Jesus healing a leper. And that's Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, that you see one person in Luke chapter 5, but here you see a difference here in Luke chapter 17 where there are 10 people. And so it is, it is pretty obvious that this is a, diff, it's a different account of what's, of, of what's happening. And if you want to say it was, if healing one person was powerful, healing 10 people was definitely way more powerful, if you want to call it that. Because you can't deny Jesus' power and his authority as you read this story. You know, it's ten times what had happened earlier. By the way, you, most of the Jewish leaders who were kind of mad at Jesus, they, they were mad at him for many reasons, but they really could not deny his power and authority. I mean, there was, there was no way that they could. I mean, if it was just the disciples, the few disciples, you know, talking about all the miracles... That wouldn't mean much to them, but you have so many witnesses, right? There are blind people who have received the sight, lame people who've been healed. There's these 5,000 people who've been fed. I mean, too many witnesses. And so there is no way they can deny the power and authority of Jesus. They often question the authority. Yeah, they always question his power, saying that it's probably, excuse me, that it's probably from the devil himself. There's several, uh, several parts they say that. Yes, Noah. Amen. And so they often question his authority, you know, saying it's from the devil, but there's way too much evidence to ever deny it. They can't do that at all. And so you have these 10 lepers, and uh, at all costs, you know that people avoided these uh, lepers. You know, back then, even now, people avoided them, and, and these people had... Real leprosy, I know I've heard some people, oh, it's, it's, let's just put it this way, it's more than just a rash. It's real leprosy because it says they stood at a distance. That's a real disease and as they stood at a distance and they call out, we know that Jesus has compassion on them and he heals them. Now again, you got to realize, I'm going a little more into the context here, considered, the Jews considered leprosy a punishment from God. Most of the time they considered leprosy a punishment or a judgment from God because of sin. You know, and you know their understanding. Is it his sin or is it the, his parents' sin or whatever? They, ha they had this understanding that it was a result of sin. And Jesus kind of undoes their, you know, this whole idea of a divine curse or whatever that is. Jesus kind of undoes that too. Anyway, this is the second encounter that Jesus has with the leper. The first one, like we said, is in Luke 5 where there's one person. This is now it's Luke 10, so it's a, uh, uh, it's a, it's, it's a different, uh, different situation right here. And there's also another difference here. He tells the first, and this is kind of interesting and I think it's necessary to, to point out. 
The first time he heals the leper in Luke chapter 5, he tells the leper, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this. So you ask the question, why does he do that? And very often, uh, you, I mean, not very often, quite, uh, quite a while, uh, let me put it this way, a few times you hear Jesus say this, hey, don't tell anybody. But you've got to think about it in terms of God's timeline. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet for him to be revealed where it is, what he is waiting for. And I think God's timeline, he's waiting for the anger of the religious leaders and the Pharisees to reach the point. It has to reach. The anger has to get to a point where the only solution for them is to crucify him, which is God's ultimate plan. Because in the first case... you got to understand the bigger picture. God's ultimate plan has to be fulfilled. And so his anger, the anger of these people has to be pushed to an extent. And that's what happens in Luke 17. He says, okay, now go show yourself to the, to your, uh, to the priest. And you see God's timetable. God's coming together. God's plan coming together perfectly. Now, real quick, leprosy itself is, is a serious uh, skin condition. And I know it was mostly eradicated in the West till... Around And it's kind of interesting because a couple of days back, and uh, I forget who I was talking to, maybe some of my colleagues at school, but leprosy is on the rise. There was this article about leprosy on the rise in Florida, of all things. I don't know if you read that, but it was interesting. It's on the rise suddenly in Florida. And of course, uh, most often it's communicated from people to people, but this article said it was coming from armadillos. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the science botanist or whatever. I'm physics. I it's different, but uh, it was just interesting. If y'all want to go read on it, go read on it, but I don't know why I had to throw that in there, but just let me get back. <laughs> it gets, okay, so it's, it's just, it's a real disease. It's commun- uh, like from, goes from people to people, uh, affects, of course, the outside portions of your, your body first, infects that, and I've seen, I've worked with lepers before, and you know, they, they, this is craziest things that they do just to startle to startle me, they'd grab this hot cup of tea or chai, you know, and they grab it with their fingers because they don't feel anything. And I would jump back and they would just laugh at me. I just, that picture's way, uh, it's just in my head. I can't forget that. First time they reacted. Anyway, uh, in the Old Testament times, if they had this disease, it was just basically a death sentence in a, in a, in a certain way. You know, because they had to go, of course, uh, the priest had to go check him out. And if the priest said, hey, you've got it, that's it, you're done. And you read all the laws concerning leprosy in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, you were pretty much doomed. That's the point. You were pretty much doomed if you had leprosy because now you are shunned. You cannot have any social contact with people other than those who already have the disease. That's it. You can't hang out with family, you can't hang out with friends, and you know, you are an outcast, and if you came too close, you read some of the stuff, and historians will tell you, if you came close enough, they would stone you to death. They would stone you to death, and so these were easily miserable, if not the most miserable people around back then, because they rejected, they think they're rejected by God, and of course they're rejected by people also. And so here they are, they are at a distance crying out to God, because they are total totally dependent on God at this point, uh, of this point of their lives. And so uh, I just want to get a little more into the narrative and then go into uh, some of the implications of this. Because again, it's a familiar story. And what sticks out, of course, is the reaction or the action and attitude of one versus the nine. You know, that's the broader picture, the gratitude, the reaction of gratitude and worship and salvation on the whole. And anyway, verse 11, it says, now on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, we know, we just talked about that this is his final few months. He's making his final way to Jerusalem. And if you read uh, in John, John kind of gives you the uh, better, a more specific context. Because, you know, he goes through Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, Mary and Martha, around then. And John 11 tells you, you know, that that's where this is happening in close to close to probably Ephraim, what you call Ephraim. So that's the, if you want to call it the geographical idea right there, a little north of there. You see that in chapter 19 of John. You can go through that later. Anyway, as he's going into the village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. Like I pointed earlier. Indicates what? The fact that they stood at a distance meant that the disease was serious. 
It was serious. What they were afflicted with was serious. And the law demanded that they stay away. They stay at a distance. And it says in verse uh, 13, And they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, and again, it's a very interesting title that they addressed Jesus by right there. Of all the words that could have been chosen, they choose Master. And it's used here in Luke, the only time in reference to Christ here, that word Master. And it carries, the word Master, especially in the Greek, carries some kind of weight to it because it talks about and implies power and authority. They call him master because they recognize power and authority that goes with that. And they address him as master. Master. They could have easily just said sir. They could have easily said lord. They could have easily said rabbi. You know, use teacher other places. But they say master. Recognize again, like I said, the authority and the power of Jesus. How did they come to this point? Because I'm sure by now, this is the end of Jesus' three years, three and a half years of ministry. They have some knowledge. They've heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. They've had this, uh, this understanding in some sort of way about not understanding, let me say, this reputation that Jesus had at that point of time. You know, he's done miracles before. Many people knew Jesus. And it's kind of always interesting to me that many people knew Jesus and what he had done, but very few people recognized his authority and his power. Yet you have, always have these people, you know, less than normal people, the blind people, the lepers right here, recognizing him and his authority and his power. People often question his authority, but we find lepers recognizing his authority even as they address him as master. Again, got to realize there are no cures, really. There are no solutions, no medicine, no magic portion, nothing. Jesus was their only hope, truly was their only hope. This was their only chance. There is no other way, and they got to take it. And so they cry out, and they cry out to someone who has authority and power. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Have mercy on us. The whole idea is that total, utter state of helplessness. Total utter state of helplessness. There is nothing they can do to help themselves. There's nothing they can do to to even benefit themselves. And so they ask for mercy because they can do nothing by themselves. Incapable of changing the situation they have. Master, Have mercy on us because they believe and they know that Jesus has the authority. He has the power to change the situation they are in. He has that authority to change the situation they are in. And you see this this phrase throughout the Gospels and about this. But one thing I want to point out is you see this time and time again in the Gospels too. People recognize his authority, but you also got to realize that Jesus was approachable, church. He was approachable. In contrast to the religious leaders who had the authority, they, they had the power, but what did they often do? You know the story, when the guy was beaten up by robbers, what did they do? They go on the other side of the road, right? Those are, that's the difference. They have the authority, they have the power, but what did they do? They probably cussed a guy out, and if he got too close, they ordered people to stone him. And so you see Jesus' difference there is the authority and the power, yet there is a person who is approachable to them. That they can approach him time and time again. You see this, church, and it's important to know that, that Jesus was approachable. I mean, think about it. The woman who broke that expensive perfume and anointed Jesus and washes his, uh, his feet with her tears and wipes it with her hair, if Jesus was not approachable, can you think about her doing it to any other religious leader? No way. No way. But she was able to do that. He, they were able to do that because they weren't threatened by him. They were scared of the others, but they weren't scared by him. He was approachable. He didn't compromise the truth just to make them feel comfortable, though. 
There's a difference, church. Yes, he was approachable, but he didn't compromise the truth just to make them feel comfortable. But people were not intimidated by him. And I pray, and my sincere prayer is that we as a church reflect that aspect of Christ as well. Anyway, these 10 lepers, here you see, they recognize his authority, recognize his power, cry out because they're totally desperate. And verse 14, it says, when he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. Go show yourself to the priests. By the way, uh, uh, the leper in verse, in verse uh, sorry, in chapter number five, he went near and he touched him. Okay, so there's no reluctance that Jesus didn't, excuse me, Jesus didn't touch them and Jesus was afraid. There's nothing of that sort. Uh, It's just different right here. He did not do that. He just simply says, go and show yourself to the priests. Now, you may ask, why does he do that here? It's kind of strange. Why does he say that? Why didn't he say, just be healed? Like he's done several other places. He doesn't say that. He just says, go Show yourself to the priest. And I think there are a couple of reasons right there. One is he's definitely testing their faith. But second thing, I think he's also following the law. Okay, he's doing both of them things. Because if you got this disease, what you had to do, and if you thought you got better, you got to go through the, go to the priest, the priest, and then of course you read Leviticus, it tells you there's this whole eight-day process where they come every day to check if you're clean, if you're getting better, and then if required, you stay another eight days, and so you go on, and so after all that, then you have your sacrifices and, and, and stuff like that, and then he pronounces you clean. So anyway, he says, go show yourself to the priest. It is or required a step of faith on their part. It required a step of faith, especially going to a priest, because that's the guy who can condemn you to death. But he says, and you're not healed already. It is a step of faith. Jesus commands them, go, because that's what's required by the law too. And so you see these people, they have an amount of faith at least. They had to have had some faith because it's shown by the action of walking to the last place they want to go to, right? And the faith in the power and the compassion of Jesus is rewarded because it says in verse 14, as they went, they were cleansed or they were healed. So you see the fact that their faith, as little as it might be, and we we know the story, but was rewarded indeed. One of the things that always gets me with this, uh, this miracle is You know, yes, Jesus, this is an incredible miracle. Yes, it is a powerful miracle, but there is no dramatic music. There's no, you know, flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder that we talk about. No drum roll where Jesus says, be healed. No, nothing at all. There's no fanfare. There's nothing dramatic about it. They just walk in and as they walked, they were healed. They just, the truth is this. It's simple. They just obeyed and walked. They obeyed and walked. And as they did that, they were healed. You and I have come across people, I'm sure, who, who desperately want a touch from God. They want that miracle. They want that breakthrough. But they're all waiting for that spectacular thing to happen where they feel it all of a sudden. And then they know it's going to be good. But sometimes all we got to do is just listen to what God says, obey and keep walking. And then experience that miracle. And see how God comes through time and time again. And that's when you least expect it. It's like, a, I'm sorry, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But that's, it's pretty simple. Instead of waiting for that big moment, that big prophetic word, or you know, that feeling you want, just be faithful and see how God makes a way for you in that situation. That's all he's calling us to. That's the simple message time and time again. Be faithful. Faithfulness is what? Obey what he has to say and walk. That's it. Don't wait for that big miracle before you start obeying what he has to say. Do it. Be faithful. That's what he's calling us to is faithfulness. Jesus in uh, chapter 5, he heals the leper and then he sends him to the priest. And here he says, hey, just keep going. And then things happen. And the irony always, the irony always gets to me because 
you know that the priests by this time are really mad with Jesus. You know, they've been trying to trick him with his words and questions that they have. You know, they're trying to discredit him among the people, saying that, hey, this guy is nobody. He's doing it with the spirit of the devil or whatever, you know. And they're looking for ways uh, where the crowd will turn against him, you know. And they're rejecting him and the claims that Jesus is making. But now, all of a sudden, you have ten lepers, and they have to validate that Jesus really healed them. It's kind of, like I said, it's, it's, always, it's, almost, it's almost funny because if you remember the part where the blind man goes in and they say, no way, you're the same man. He's like, no, it's me. He's like, no way, there's something wrong with you. And he says, hey, I can just tell you what happened to me. And here in this case, it's kind of funny because what did they have to do? Eight days. They, uh, eight. Eight. <laughs> Sorry, eight. Sorry. Eight days. Eight days. They've got to come day in and out. Man, you are healed indeed. And they've got to sit through, like, man, that guy from Galilee just told us to keep walking and we are here. Eight days, he's just rubbing it in their face almost, you know. No wonder they're getting upset with him. But it's just kind of interesting that they, you know, they believed, the lepers I'm talking about, believed in Jesus and they just were desperate enough that they obeyed, even though they didn't see the miracle right away. You got to realize again that Jesus, and in several, several places, for the miracle to happen, Jesus kind of requires a step of faith and our demonstration of faith. I mean, there are stories in the Bible and there are situations in the Bible where the person didn't have faith. Like Naaman, the guy, you know, we're talking about leprosy again. That's why that idea comes. There was a place, you know, he didn't believe, but he still got healed. And so there are places of that, but more often than not, a miracle requires a step of faith on our behalf. You see that. God does the miracle. God wants to heal, but very often he's just waiting for that step of faith. And we kind of need to take that step of faith. Now, the miracle itself is pretty amazing because, again, in my mind, putting that picture, you know, I can see that they're walking and I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us whether it's all of a sudden, you know, they take that one step and everything got, went away or as they were walking, it slowly happened. We're not absolutely sure, but... It was pretty spectacular because I can picture them at one point or the other. They are stopping and they're looking around, looking at each other, checking each other out. And like, hey, it's gone. It's gone. And that moment I can imagine the, you know, there's shock, there's excitement, there's relief and a whole range of emotions that come over them. And it says in verse 15 and 16, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. We're getting to the point of the story. Only one of them, one of them, when they saw that he was healed, turned back and came back to Jesus. I can imagine that the excitement and the, the emotions are pretty much the same for all of them, right? But there's only one person who turned back came to Jesus. I mean, I'm sure as they're standing there and they receive their miracle, excuse me, I'm sure they're thinking through the implications of what's just happened. They're thinking through the implications of what has just happened. You know, now they can go back to their family. Now they can go hang out with their friends. Now they can get back to life itself. They're thinking about all that, and I'm sure there's a lot more. They understood the implications, but there's this one person who really understood what was happening. I think there's only one person who realized what was happening, and what he realized is that he was in the presence of God himself a few moments earlier. Only one of them recognized that, and he goes back. Yes, he received his miracle, but I think he realized what he really needed at that moment, and what he really needed was going to be in the person of Christ itself. Amen. He got what he needed, but then he realizes that what he really needs is in the presence of Christ himself and that's why he's filled with gratitude and he realizes that the longing for a relationship with God himself. Amen. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to think that he realizes more than ever that he needed something more than just physical healing. Even though he was not a Jew, he knew the Old Testament enough 
to know that God was more than just a healer. God was also the Savior. He wasn't content with just physical touch. I think he realized that before I can be reconciled to the people again, I need to be reconciled with God first. And so he comes back, and as he comes back, he does three things that Luke points out right there. First in verse 15, he says, he comes back, and the first thing is praising God with a loud voice. Praising God with a loud voice, and we know it's not volume here. It's not about loud in terms of volume. It's the same phrase that is used when Elizabeth, you know, when she's filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1, where she just gets all excited and shouts God's praise loud. That's the whole idea here. It's not the idea of volume. It's the idea of the expression of great joy in His presence. So he comes back praising God at the top of his voice, meaning that, knowing that the power came from Christ himself and that he was healed. And he knew at that moment, he knew that Jesus was more than just a man, another teacher. Because we see what he does. How do we know he knew that Jesus was more than a teacher, more than a man? Because he says he praises God. But the second thing he does, as in verse 16, it says he threw himself down at his He threw himself down. Another translation says he fell flat on his face at his feet. The idea there is only one idea. It's the idea of worship. Again, like I said, Samaritans, just like the Jews, they knew God. And they knew that God was the only one who was worthy of their worship. And here you see exactly what he's doing there. It's an attitude of worship. He praises God because of excitement, but also recognizing that he was in the presence of God himself. He worships him. He worships him. Praises God with a loud voice. Throws himself at Jesus' feet. And the third thing we see he does right there, he thanked him. He give him, he gives him thanks. Another translation, he gives thanks to him. He knew that it was God. He knew that it was God. Jesus right there stood there in front of him, had given him this gift and had healed him itself. And when he recognizes, it's kind of the light bulb moment that goes into his mind. This is not a man. This is God himself. And then once he gets that, he can't, you know, he can't restrain himself. He can't restrain his praise. He can't restrain his worship. He can't restrain his thanksgiving because he recognizes Jesus for who he really is. Does he understand everything? No. But he recognizes Jesus as God itself. What are the other nine guys doing, church? They're probably in all likelihood making their way to the priests. They're making their way because they realize that they are clean themselves. They're going to go show the priests, you know, hey, we're done, we're good, you know, let them do whatever they have to do, make the sacrifice required, everything that was required. Yes, they're grateful. I'm sure they're grateful. Yes, they're excited. Yes, they're enthusiastic. But what do we do? We got to go to the temple to get this all done, right? And so they go to the temple. Yes, we'll worship God and we'll thank God and we'll, you know, in, in the temple. But they miss the point totally. Think with me a little here because I think it is a little subtle right there. They have to go to the priest to the temple. Are they grateful to God? I'm sure they are. I'm sure they thank God. They're excited about it. But they don't recognize that Jesus himself is the temple. It's an interesting point that I think we, we kind of overlook uh, time sometimes. What they didn't realize, that Jesus was God himself. Yes, God dwelt in the temple, but the real true temple was Jesus himself. Yeah. That's the point right there. Where God really dwelt was in the person of Jesus Christ. Only one of them recognizes that. It's kind of interesting to me because... Like I said, a little side note, uh, during the season of Advent last year, I was thinking about the temple and I was doing a little study on the temple and as I, this is one of the things that came to my mind too. Because what does the temple represent, church? The temple, we always know, represents the presence of God. 
But you also got to think about it. The temple was the place where God met with his people. It's where God and man came together. Now think about Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as the temple. That's in John 2. You know, destroy the temple and come back, whatever. How amazing it is that he himself was the visible presence of God. But in him was also the meeting place where divinity and humanity is perfect. 100% divine and 100% humanity met together right there. It gives a whole different meaning. The temple, when you understand him as the temple. The real temple comes together perfectly right there. Man and God meet together in the person of Christ himself, representing that. The presence of God. Anyways, this one leper knows that God offers, Jesus offers more than just physical healing. And that's why he returns, because he's grateful. He's grateful, but he returns seeking what? Seeking what he really needed which was salvation that only Christ can give. Of course, Luke, typical Luke fashion, you know, where he picks up the least people, likely people, the women and everybody else. Luke throws that punch, you know, and he was a Samaritan, just to rub it in. From the Jews' perspective, we know the Samaritans were an outcast. The only reason they were hanging out together with the Jews was why? Because they all had leprosy. That was the only reason they hung out together. And again, uh, Jesus and the Samaritans. The first person to who Jesus revi- reveals his Messiahship to is the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan too. She's the first person. And so, you know, the whole idea that Jesus was only for the Jews, no, it's for the whole world. Anyway, Luke, uh, uh, verse 17. He comes back, of course, Luke throws it in. Yeah, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus, of course, has this series of rhetorical questions, three rhetorical questions, you know, that, that kind of drive home the point, the important point here, idea of ingratitude and indifference that we see. Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? 18, it says, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? It's kind of the sentence structure there is actually pretty interesting as well, but what is implied is pretty straightforward. They ought to be here as well. Where are they? That's the question. No answer, of course, because we can assume that they were going to the priest. They don't have any interest in Jesus anymore because they got what they wanted from him when they cried out to him. Yes, they had faith, but that faith, you can say, was pretty shallow and superficial. Because they had no real desire to worship him. They had no real desire to praise him. They had no real desire to thank him. They don't see him as God. They don't fall down at his feet in humility and ask for the real mercy that they need, which is salvation. Church, this reaction from the nine shouldn't surprise us because that's the dominant attitude of those who hung out with Jesus because as long as he gave them what they wanted, you know, he put on a show for them, they followed him. But as soon as he starts talking about, hey, give up everything, carry your cross, they all walk away. And so we're not surprised by their reaction. They don't see him as God. They don't see a necessity to worship him at all, church. Because that's the dominant mentality of the people throughout his ministry. You can, I just think through what they're thinking, you know. I think they think exactly what. They're looking for someone who can come and give them what they want. That political messiah. That's the mindset anyway. Nothing far away from someone who can save them from their sin. That's not even on the radar at that point in time. But here they have. So we're not surprised by their, uh, you know. They're looking for someone to feed them, looking for someone who will heal them. They were looking for someone who will take care of them day in and day, uh, you know, day out. That's it. But they weren't really considered of things of real, real significance, church. And I think this is a point we need to pause and consider because I think in the evangelical world today, we offer that kind of Jesus to people and we need to be careful. 
Come to Jesus because he'll take care of you. Yes, he does. But the biggest reason he comes is to save you from your sin. And if you don't want to tell them about that, that there is a need for repentance also. There's no point telling them about all the blessings that will happen if you follow Christ. I know it sounds harsh, but that's just the truth. We don't want to portray a Jesus. Yes, please trust me. He provides, he feeds, he does everything. That's the Jesus we worship. Those are his promises. But that's not the primary reason he came. He came to what? Save. This one leper realizes he needs a savior. This one guy knew that he was and had encountered God face to face. He knew, and I think firmly believe, he knew that leprosy wasn't the issue. Sin was the bigger issue. He realized God had mercy on him, a sinner, and had shown him mercy by healing him. Compassion, kindness. The others got what they wanted from Christ. They didn't need him anymore, church. And I'll come back to this, but... Be honest, as a pastor, I've seen that way too many times. They get what they want from Christ and then they walk away. Seen that way too many times. One scholar put this and I just loved it because I highlighted it too. Jesus really doesn't have anything to offer you on a permanent basis except for salvation and eternal life. If you don't come to him for that, you cheat yourself of the real reason he came to this world. Salvation and eternal life. That is the real offer. Everything else is extra. And if you don't seek him for that, you're seeking the wrong Jesus. Anyway, he asks, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And of course, the word used for foreigner is a strong word. Why? Because, again... I think in my mind, like he came to his own, his own rejected him. But this foreigner, the word used is the same word that they had hanging outside the temple. Because that was the Gentile court. A foreigner could come only here and no further. Right? He couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. Yet you have this foreigner coming into the very presence of God. He's outside the covenant technically, right? He's an outsider to the promises as they believed it. But through Christ, he has, he has access to the Holy of Holies, to God's presence itself. And he says, verse 19, it says, he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. In other words, your faith has saved you. It's the same phrase. And if Several times in the Gospels and the, uh, the letters, the epistles, they use the, word fra- they use the word saved or salvation. Um, more often than not, that's the word used. I don't know. There probably is some contextual thing why they made you well in this part. But it doesn't matter. The idea is this. Your faith has saved you. Your faith, that step of faith that you have taken to put your life in the life of Christ That is what has saved you. He did it all. But we responded in faith. He responded in faith. The same phrase again he uses to uh, when he forgives that woman in Luke chapter 7 verse 50. He says, your faith has saved you. That's the point. That's the bigger picture, church. His faith saved him. You see in this leper, trust You see gratitude. You see humility. You see a commitment and a love as he praises and worships God. And that's what faith is all about. Humility, gratitude. I mean, the list can go on. Commitment, love, worship. That's all part of what real faith is like. The other nine didn't get it, church. This one person, the foreigner, gets it. It's a faith that recognizes Jesus as God, but also recognizes and embraces him as Lord. There's a difference between the two. Recognizing him as God, but it's different embracing him as Lord. That's the challenge. That's the challenge, church. 
Because we make the same mistake time and time again, and many people make that same mistake. Yes, we recognize God, but we don't make him Lord of our lives. We see this, like I said, reflected in churches, reflected in people around us. Excuse me. Give us healing. Give us that food. Deliver us from whatever demons or the situation I'm in or do the miracles that I need. Yes, I'm grateful. Yes, I recognize that, God, you did it for me, but that's it. I can't make you Lord over everything. Similar to back then, it's similar to right now. People enjoy the benefits of following Christ without real commitment to take up the cross and follow daily. That's the challenge, church. That's the challenge because the majority are takers. Few of them come back to worship Him. The majority are takers. Few of them really come back to worship Him. Majority fix their eyes on things that have temporary value, superficial, but few of them really want the transformation that comes from following Christ. I want enough of Jesus Christ to live my own life. I've heard that so many times. That can't be us, church. Because we need to consider, and it's the challenge for all of us. I think the story just challenges me and the challenge all of us that we all can taste the goodness of God, experience His grace, but not worship Him the way we ought to. We may still be as lost as ever. We may experience His grace, experience His goodness, experience what He has to offer, but we may still truly be lost, church. That's not, uh, that must not be any of us here. And people even say it, and I've said, God gave this to me, and you hear people, you know, thank God for this. And that's all good stuff. But recognizing Him as God and making Him Lord are totally two different things, and we need to make Him Lord of our lives. You can say all the right things, church. But until you fall on your face in worship to Christ and embrace Him as Master, it really doesn't matter. Let me summarize this real quick and wrap this up. It's a great story, like a great challenge to our faith. But no matter what you're going through, know who you are crying out to. The leper said master because they recognize his authority recognize his power when you cry out to God recognize who he is that he is able more than able there is no problem that's too difficult for him there is no mountain that he can't scale there's nothing that he can't do church he is truly master when you cry out to him cry out in faith like they did recognizing that he is able to and willing to meet all our needs Second thing I want us to consider is ask that while you cry out to God, determine to seek God, not just what you can get from Him. You need to do that. Cry out to God because He's the only one who really can make a difference. But as you cry out to Him, make sure your eyes are fixed on Him, not just what He can do for you, church. Seek Him. Seek his face, not just his favor. Seek him. Determine to seek God, not what you can, not just what you can get from him. Respond, thirdly, respond in faith and obedience, even if you don't see immediate results. Respond in faith and obedience, even if you don't see immediate results. Church, like I said earlier, more often than not, God is waiting for you to take that step of faith. Respond in faith and obedience. You don't know what to do. You have his word. Just live in obedience and faithfully to that. That's it. And see him come through for you. Excuse me. Number four. Have an attitude of worship regardless of the results. Let me emphasize the attitude of gratitude. Our gratitude is not dependent on what will happen. Our gratitude is dependent on what he has already done for us. He has saved us. He has saved us. 
attitude of gratitude, attitude of worship him. Doesn't matter what's happening. And lastly, number five, don't, please, don't let your devotion to Christ stop with your miracle. Please don't let your devotion and your worship and your following Christ stop once you get what you want from him. Bow your heads with me at this time. It's a very familiar story, church. It's familiar, especially if you've been brought up in the church. We know the story. The big picture or the primary focus we know is the attitude of one leper versus the attitude of the nine others where you see gratitude and worship and real submission to God versus the others who are just caught up with the miracle, ingratitude, and a failure to make Him truly master or Lord. I don't know what your situation is right now, church. Most of the people I know here, most of us have seen and tasted and experienced His goodness in our lives. Doesn't matter how helpless your situation is and right now, church, know that God is able. Know who you are crying out to. Know who you are calling out to. Call out to Him in faith, church, because He is able, more than able, and He is willing to meet your needs all your needs. As you call out to Him, church, examine your hearts. I don't want to be that one person who seeks God just for what He can give me. I seek Him to know Him more. I want to know You more, Lord. more of you, God, is what I desire. 